2: You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Will Mavity's interviews with the editor for The Power of the Dog, Peter Skabaris, and the cinematographer Ari Wagner, and my interview with one of the film's stars, Jesse Plemons.
3: <laughs> All right, so um, first off, you know, you've been um, David Mashad's kind of longtime editor. So how did you get teamed up
4: with Jane? uh that happened kind of around i think we'd maybe just finished the king and you know sydney's a pretty small place and everyone knows each other i'd never actually met jane but uh david and jane known each other for quite a few years and and david um i had this story much after getting the gig but uh david was telling jane how how fantastic i was and how um how much fun he'd had working with me and Yeah, and then uh, it just kind of happened. He was right.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So I guess we should just kind of go ahead and say, I think the only way to really discuss your work in this film effectively is to acknowledge to anyone who's going to be listening to this that there's going to be some spoilers because, you know, I can only ask you about my favorite parts if we do that. Film's a puzzle box. There's lots of clues. I guess the big twist in this film it's all building up to is that Cody Smith, McVee's character infected Benedict Cumberbatch with arsenic, right?
4: With uh, anthrax.
3: Not arsenic, anthrax, yes.
4: Yeah, correct, yeah.
3: So uh, why don't you just kind of go through the process of laying those puzzle pieces to kind of sneakily build that reveal?
4: Yeah, I mean, you could go all the way back to the opening voiceover where Pete's talking, Peter's character's talking about, um, you know, uh, he will save his mother. If, what kind of man would he be if he didn't kind of... Um, so like that's actually the first clue, which is literally before picture starts rolling. So it's right, right at the very beginning, uh, and then from there, it's you know Pete's really obsessed with medical books and his father's medical books and his kind of dissecting rabbits. So <laughs> that seems so funny. You know he's um, practicing to be a surgeon. So it was, it was kind of. There were actually a lot of clues, but, but I think the story of Phil and Peter kind of getting to know each other and coming together and it's such an ambiguous, kind of turns into quite an ambiguous, dangerous love story. Um, mm-hmm. And we knew that would be so, well, we hoped that would be so kind of interesting and um, enthralling that you would actually not really be thinking about the clues while you watch them and only would wind back in your head when when the final reveal happens and I feel like that um shot on the bed with the rope kind of caressing the rope with um gloves on is kind of like the perfect kind of um bringing it all together uh when he slides the rope under the bed so but it was also really important that when the reveal happened that it was kind of mixed feelings and there was a there's a love in there and a kind of yeah, we want it to be really complicated. We want that feeling to be a complicated one for Peter's character. There's a love there, and but there's, uh, you know, Phil kind of is through his actions kind of dug his own grave in a sense. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it's not like Peter is essentially, it's kind of like good fortune. And, prepar- and preparation coming together for the plan to yeah. work <laughs> so we see the preparation and and uh, Rose kind of giving away the hides is the is the good fortune because it kind of brings Phil's world totally undone which um, puts him in a vulnerable state where Peter can kind of put his plan into action
3: the scene where we see Peter go out and I guess that's when he gathered the anthrax uh, is kind of early in the Film, isn't
4: it? It's not that early, it happens right after. Um, so Pete, Pete and Phil have they've had two scenes where they're actually speaking to each other. Everything else before that they're quite distant except for the very beginning of the film. It's right after Phil brings him in and puts him on the saddle and says sitting there you'll you'll uh, learn everything you need to know about riding. Uh, that saddle belonged to Bronco Henry, the greatest writer I ever knew. Um, so it's kind of when they're just starting to come together, and Pete's learning how to ride, and Phil's kind of treating him like you know, tough love, kind of you know, fall off, get back on the horse, kind of thing. So Phil's not really that friendly to him at that stage. Uh, so it's just after Phil kind of realizes that this kid's got a little more going on with seeing the dog on the hill and um, all that stuff. So it's kind of in the build up to the to the final final act, I guess this 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 film's kind of got five acts in a, in a sense so it's um kind of an unusual structure
3: well i was going to say because like you know because the film isn't structured necessarily in the traditional hollywood three act structure um i guess that gave you a lot of liberty to choose where you were going to put certain scenes as jane shot them did this film transform a lot in the edit compared to how it was scripted or how it was in the uh
4: book? yeah it did it didn't you know, it was kind of, there's lots of small changes. I mean, the the points of view and the shift, like each chapter being a point of view. I mean, the chapters weren't there in the script, essentially. That was something we came up with as a, as a signal to the audience to like embrace the um, shifting points of view. Like it would just help a lot in getting, just uh, signaling that, okay, we're going to be thrown in. There's a big time jump, um, you know, the next thing isn't going to follow on exactly from the previous. Whereas when we were doing it with like a dip to black or a, a much smaller signal, it, you could feel that, oh, okay, there's going to be some confusion here. It's going to be a little harder to follow. But um, so that was, that was a big change. I thought that structurally gave it real definition and, and it, it kind of just made it so much easier to, to follow and, and to embrace the, um, the slightly unorthodox Uh, more literary kind of structure, I guess.
3: So there's a couple scenes I just love in particular. Probably my two favorites in the film are the one in the barn right before uh, Benedict gets sick. And then also this great scene where they have dinner guests over and it's just incredibly stretched out and awkward. So why don't you tell me a little bit about constructing those two scenes? Because the editing really makes the, the tension work in both of those. Yeah, they're
4: two of my favorites as well. So uh, I'm glad you like them. <laughs> 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 well, the, the dinner party, we actually had so much more of that scene. We had a, a whole, you know, actual dinner party, uh, whereas we kind of chose to come in right before Rose's asked to play the piano just because that's where it got really interesting, essentially. Right. Um but that was also the last scene I received right before um, the shoot got shut down for COVID. That was the last scene you shot. So it was a little, you could feel hopefully plays into the kind of performances, but it was a weird day because, you know, it was like everyone knew that something bad was going to happen that day and in terms of like, is this, are we still going? Is it, you know, <laughs> like what the hell's happening? So um, it was a, uh, yeah, you could feel the tension in the, in, in the dailies. And I, I thought Kirsten's so great in that scene. Um so good. Yeah, so incredible. And and George and uh you know Jesse's so fantastic as well, kind of pushing her to um play play something when he knows she doesn't want to. You <laughs> know, great um insensitive husband moment. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but what about but, uh, really stretching it out, you know, because it's just oh you feel for everyone in, in that room in that scene.
4: Yeah, we we kind of we chose to actually play that quite wide, actually, and really feel the room and the walk uh, over. We, we had a lot of coverage there, and we did have versions where we kind of cut around to see sit down at the piano and then kind of shuffle and get ready. And it kind of built a different type of tension. What we realised it did was when Phil walks into the room, we'd kind of gone too far, like that, mm-hmm. you know, there was a release. Like we 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 built the middle up too much, so the end wasn't working anymore. So, so we kind of stripped it right back. So the only real close up we use at the piano is the the fingers on the keys, and I love that performance. <laughs> was, we kind of added a double a double piano hit to make it sound even kind of more like jarring than it was on the day. Um, and then and then there was just that great shot of the governor and. George and the old lady and old gent and governor's wife just not reacting and sitting there. It was, it, it was, it was really about like, how long can we, how long can we hold this was really the question. It's kind of essentially about really careful structuring, keeping it as simple as we could. We kind of used as few shots as we could, but held them as long as we could uh, was, was really where we ended up and where we felt it was the strongest. And also just so that when Phil comes in, we hadn't gone too far, uh, and then he could really, and I really love the end of that scene. I think um, Benedict's incredible with the whistling as he leaves and just really, and she kind of gets abandoned there too by everyone, which was, we could have played that close, but we really love that angle where you could just see everyone walk past yeah. her and just abandon her to, to Phil essentially. And, uh, and Phil could really just kind of, you know, drive it home. The embarrassment of it all and the kind of you know it's it's really a huge it was a huge thing for us to make sure that's essentially the start of Rose's drinking so we kind of we we needed that to land in a really particular way in a really emotional way for her yeah and I I, I think we achieved what we were hoping hoping to do
3: and talk to me about the barn scene because that's so good
4: the barn scene is you know it's it's kind of like yeah it's the big scene. <laughs> there was there's a lot to that one. I mean, I actually like to think of it as that barn scene starting on that pan over the hills um, after after Pete's brought over the hides to Phil and he's he's said that he's going to make rope tonight and it's going to be their moment together, you know, alone in the barn at night. I um, kind of wanted to go somewhere really a little abstract and a little atmospheric and and we found that shot of the hills um in our giant collection of kind of um atmospheres and landscapes and textures uh and that that shot just had such kind of power on its own it had so much mystery to it there's so much so much in the shadows and there's so much texture and it kind of the longer you hold it the more abstract it becomes and kind of allows you to kind of go to places in your mind that you probably wouldn't with a different type of landscape shot so that was that was kind of the beginning of it uh finding that shot really just set the tone for what was to come in a way it was kind of hypnotic kind of move in the camera as well and then we we discovered that we really wanted to have a little something from phil which was we went through all our macro shots in the film that we had and we had this great shot of Phil rolling a cigarette with one hand that we hadn't used anywhere else, which was shot for a really early scene when George goes into the bar and looking for Phil um, much earlier. So, so we, um, we brought that in before Pete walks into the wide with the bucket and kind of enters the space, and Phil kind of brings him in, and then there was this. There's a great, like, the actual shot of the hands going into the bucket, which is the murder weapon. Yeah, and blood comes out, you know, and there's, like, blood in the water. It's kind of like a horror shot. But yeah, I, I think on first watch, it's, it's you know, it's, it's subtle, hopefully enough that you just take it as it is. But on second watch, it's kind of the, you know, it's the moment of infection. right (laughs) uh and then there's a great shot of peter kind of looking down which which again we were kind of always thinking in this scene like of of a second viewing that that shot of him looking down at phil um you know working the hides hands in water on second viewing i think is almost like a horror shot (laughs) you know it's it's him watching it happen like it's his plan going to uh it's, you know, everything going to plan, essentially. But we really, there's a love story kind of building at the same time. It's kind of this um, incredible kind of sexual tension building between these two men, right. um, which is the way you see it the first time, I hope. Uh, you <laughs> <know>. so, <laughs> so there's all these, like, really layered performances happening. And that shot, we kind of, we wanted a tiny bit more, so we actually... This is getting very technical in the in a craft sense. We just No, I like this. this is okay, cool. We held the eye line. Pete's character just shifted the eye line. So we needed like an extra five frames. So we just kind of um just in post, just kind of shifted the eye line back and kinda of held it in a really um particular way and to, to really enhance the gaze and yeah, from, from there it becomes really hypnotic with Pete watching the rope and, uh, you know, it's um, it's just this very slow kind of dance that happens between the two. And, and we really strip back the dialogue there to just the essentials. Like um, there's a bunch of lines that actually Benedict cut out of the script on the set with Jane when they were going through it and then we cut back another bunch of lines. So we kind of almost play it. As silent as possible so it's just this kind of building and building and building of tension and also there's a really really great uh power shift in that scene like pete, yeah. pete really owns the scene like we held him at the end for a really long time on like totally uh we actually did did have a version early on where we kind of went to Phil one more time and then we were like no this is definitely this is pete's time to take over and um, right yeah, and all the other scenes we play between Peter and Phil uh, consciously, Phil really drives those scenes. Like Phil's the one on screen way more and he he kind of leads the scene and it's kind of, Pete's there not saying too much in the earlier scenes, like, you know, he's fairly quiet. It's kind of a gradual power shift, but that scene's where it really where it comes together. So that scene to me was... You could almost look at all their scenes together, and, and that was kind of the uh, the third part of their um, their story, essentially. Because all their dialogue scenes kind of have a similar tone, but they're they're really weighted to fill. And then the kind of the second one at the haystack is you know a little more even. And then by the time we get there, it's like okay, now Pete's just like taking charge, and he's the one who takes the cigarette over. So it was really about looking at them together. In a way, and not just as a singular scene. But yeah, all the back row stuff in there also is like we've built this idea through the whole film of like Phil kind of puts all of his all of his emotions that he doesn't let out in the real world is so buttoned up and so closed off from everyone else. Like all his emotion is kind of channeled into these like little physical acts like polishing a yeah. saddle and um and that rope is kind of him making the rope in front of Peter. We we kind of channel all of that uh sexual tension in into this kind of
3: yeah know. it's pretty you have a shot that's pretty
4: Freudian right like he's holding the rope
3: absolutely uh, yeah, like, oh that's, man this is deliberate.
4: yeah absolutely that's that's Jay. that's jane right there <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a couple of those right because you have this cutaway
3: too where like
4: benedict's holding this giant log over his
3: head oh that's yeah, the, yeah, right? yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> so you guys, uh, you have the, these horses right after that scene. You have these
4: horses like flies buzzing on them after the barn scene. Tell me about yeah. that yeah yeah, that's possibly it's hard to have one favorite cut in the movie, but I had to if I had to choose one, it would be Pete with a cigarette smiling at Phil to to this kind of macro horse shot in bright sunlight from a night scene. Again, it was it was kind of a bookend with the hill shot I talked about earlier is it, it was it's kind of abstract in a sense, kind of a place for the audience to just sit in that mood that we'd created, but also for it to shift and allow the audience to really kind of start to project onto images that don't, you know, necessarily have a cerebral meaning, but but a just atmosphere and also Jane Jane would talk about like kind of animals being like you know, incredibly beautiful, but you can never tell what they're thinking, kind of, yeah. Uh, which kind of adds. And uh, yeah, it's, we found those shots actually in the COVID break, when the shoot was just about to start up again, Jane asked me to cut a reel together um, to get the crew back into it and get them excited and, and um, kind of show them what we'd done so far and, and, you know, get them excited about what was to come. Uh, and, and those horse shots, I, I, I was going, I don't think Jane had seen them by this stage. Because I would kind of be unit, you know, run and gun, kind of grab stuff here and there, and um, right. And so I I popped them in there because I loved them so much. And then that was a that was the first thing we talked about when she'd seen it. It was like, wow, those shots need to be in the film. Like they just had so much power on their own. So we cut that sequence, and then yeah, we found that fly shot, and we kind of just wanted to bring a little bit of sickness into that sequence, like for it to turn into something in right. sinister. Self. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I thought
3: that was so good.
4: Yeah, um, yeah.
3: there's a couple other, we're about to run out of time, but there's a couple other cutaway shots I was intrigued by. You really linger on the shot of like the blood once it's dripped onto the weeds after he cuts his hand. Was there symbolism intended there, you think, beyond just showing up, this is when he's gonna get cut because later he's gonna put that cut in the uh I mean I
4: I think if you say blood, like we really purposefully actually showed the blood first before we showed the cut, which is something we kind of do a lot to to always be like a few steps ahead of the audience. So it's kind of like you take it as something first. So I guess I had a very practical reason, but there's also just something about a shot of blood hitting grass, <laughs> hitting bright, bright yellow wheat that's, uh, you know, it kind of burns into your memory. It's like one of those striking kind of um, – combinations of colours and, and um, you know, it just has a visceral effect on you. Um, but we also did that with Thomason's reaction to Pete cutting the <laughs> yeah. uh, the rabbit open. Like, we played the reaction first and then only played the reveal, like, after the reaction had completely finished. So we kind of were playing with... Because usually you'd kind of go, boom show the thing, and then reaction. And then, you know, but we were really playing with um, expectation of... And and holding back and always being a little ahead, so that was that was another one of those moments, which I think has a far more, just a different psychological effect on on the way you watch it.
3: Oh yeah, my audience is dying at that moment. She's like, "Oh my god!" He seems like magnificent rabbit. <laughs> so funny. Um, and then the last one is uh, you you go back to him playing with the comb. With Peter playing with his comb a lot, and you have all these protracted close-ups of that. And, that seems important. Tell me about the comb decision.
4: Yeah, I mean, the comb was something we we kind of first... It, it's a little tell for Pete that that there's more going on than he shows. I mean, he's such a kind of closed book in a sense. He's kind of, you know, he's a kind of disarmingly blank character at times. Like, uh, you know, kind of oh, doesn't yeah. really emote. But that the comb was a device... Because the first time we see him use the comb is actually... Uh, tearing up after phil and his boys mm. and made fun of him all day and so we kind of started that as so yeah that's the first time we see it and we know it's kind of related to his emotion so it's it's, it's a sense of showing that he is an emotional being throughout plus it's a really annoying sound which kind of really stay, stays with you you know it's like one of those fun um for an editor those kind of devices and sounds are so fun to play with you know because they kind of add Add a sense of um, like an internal pace to a shot, and uh, yeah, and yeah. So it was it was really fun from a craft point of view, but but it was a yeah, definitely a sense of uh, communicating that there was an internal emotional world going on that we weren't necessarily privy to.
3: Did you ever think about ending it elsewhere than on the particular scene and shot
4: that you did, like with him looking out the window afterwards? We did actually. We had we had a shot of his medical book that had um, kind of like a slow a slow pad across his books uh, and it ended on a definition of anthrax. Mm. Um, and we did actually go back and forth going like, do we need this? It was kind of like, you know, some, some people in the audience would probably appreciate like a really clear like, okay, this is what exactly what happened. The more we talked about, the more, and the more we kind of, we showed a few people, the less, we wanted it to end on something so singular, we really wanted yeah. it to be open and for you to think as much about the relationship they had formed and the relationships in the movie and the themes and you know everything going on because there's so much, so much subtext in this film um, oh. rather than reducing it down to, okay, this is a film about a murder with anthrax, you know, which is kind of what it did, but it, it did work. I mean, there was a, there is a, you know, a school of thought that would might might want to go that way. <laughs> you no, know, I I think the kind of the
3: ambiguity works better this way. It's pretty obvious given like they, you know, they say like you never handled like livestock and then it cuts the people. It's like, oh okay.
4: yeah. I mean, I've definitely come across a few people who didn't quite get it because they were so caught up in the relationship that was forming and the and the love story. So, but you know, it's like we we definitely. We talked about like a second viewing, and we, we hoped it would be the kind of film that would, would get watched multiple times. And Netflix yeah, I can't was, wait to I watch think. this thing again,
3: so I can, like, yeah. you know, like, until we talked, I didn't realize the moment he puts his hand in the bucket was the exact moment that he gets infected, so now I'm yeah. like, oh.
4: yeah, I mean, it's that whole scene, but that's the that's definitely the kind of, the big, one of the big moments, yeah, it's probably, if you would trace it back to a singular moment, that would probably be it, I'd say. <laughs> this is fantastic talking about this there's so much to unpack in this movie so thank you so
3: much for taking the time and i uh, i hope you and the film show up throughout the awards
4: conversation because this is banging work oh thanks so much man i appreciate it. appreciate the time too It's just a man only another man
3: So are you in L.A. right now for Power of
5: the Dog? Yeah, I am very much in L.A.
3: So I guess your body clock is just like, or are you fully based here now?
5: No, I've kind of been, I uh, haven't been back to Australia for a long while. I've kind of been, I did a film in Dublin um, and then, yeah, then we came to the U.S. for for this basically. So we've kind of been just on a, <laughs> a wild tour. Oh, um, you're on the new
3: uh, the new Emma Don- Donahue movie, right?
5: Yeah, 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 yeah. The Wonder. So yeah, I'm very excited about that. Have you read the book?
3: No, I haven't. But obviously, I, I love the room. And um, mm-hmm. who's the lead in this one? It's
5: somebody. Um, Florence Pugh is a. Uh... Oh yeah, I love yeah. her. Yeah, she's awesome. We, I mean, we know each other from Lady Macbeth, so we kind of go way back. Um, well, way back as far as you can, you know. <laughs> to Lady Macbeth so I'm just trying to quit a couple of programs that are good. Yeah, out. of course Yeah.
3: Alright, so um, it, it goes without saying that this is a stunning film one of the things I liked about it is it's not just pretty you know, like there there can be an inclination like oh, we shot it in the outdoors, look at the sunsets, but um, I thought there's a lot more going on here instead of just using light. I feel like you guys used line and shape really interesting to talk about the characters. Mm. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much in, but like there's a scene early on where Jesse Clemens is sitting there and he's got his hat in his lap. that really emphasizes the circle. And every time it cuts back to uh Benedict, they're like he's framed the banisters and diagonals. Were the lines and shapes like that intentional?
5: Um yeah, I mean, we designed that house like really specifically for um I guess to shoot with with very much shots in mind. Um, so yeah, those banisters were big. We we kind of designed that space actually, really. The the keystone scene there was the scene where um Rose is playing the piano and Phil's kind of peering down at her oh, over the yeah. banister. Um that was our kind of touchstone scenes in terms of a scene to kind of build a house around, essentially. Um, but yeah, obviously um. I love that scene as well, actually, with um when George comes home and he's so smitten and feels so um cruel and yeah, we'll see him kind of start off as this little kind of person up and come kind of approach camera on this little maze kind of thing. But yeah, I mean the other thing I guess we loved playing with was silhouettes and yeah. uh, having those kind of dark banisters um and the dark uh yeah, it's a beautiful space for doing that. And I guess there's other things that maybe you see in the barn with the doorways and the silhouette, um, seeing where Phil and Peter are, Peter's on the saddle for the first time. That's kind of silhouette um, theme as well. And and I guess Phil as a character, is such a great silhouette in himself. He's got these kind of woolly legs and the hat um, and very buttoned up tight. He's kind of like half man, half animal. Um, yeah, we're very much uh, yeah, very much trying to make a, a monster movie in a way, like the, mon- the monster in the house kind of um, thing. So, yeah, the house was a huge, uh, huge part of that. And we designed it really definitely in very close collaboration with Grant Major, who's an incredible production designer um, and very much thinking about the shots we had in mind, uh, a house with kind of, Having the two levels where someone often Phil usually can look down on people as he looks down on everyone in life, um, just kind of spy like a hawk or something. Um, it's very like tuned in like a hawk to know like what to say to get someone, or the sense he's always kind of watching down. And we get that in that piano scene or another scene where um Phil's watching Rose outside drinking and, and she can't see him. But um yeah, so the, the two levels. And then these kind of, also like a house with a lot of doors. There's so many doors, which kind of adds to that monster feeling of behind any door could be, there's no There's no way to be safe, really. It's very right. exposing when there's a lot of doors. Um, and, yeah, the dark timber panelling downstairs um, with the dark floorboards, the dark banisters. Yeah, and then even, um, say, in Rose's room, this kind of very, It doesn't have as much darkness in it. It's like overwhelming floral, kind of. Mm -hmm. That room's like a kind of, it's so overwhelming in there. It's like there's so many things and this pinkness and this kind of femininity that's um, not actually a refuge. It's kind of, uh, yeah, overwhelming. Yeah, it's oppressive. Um, Like this visual. overwhelm in that room and again that was Grant's um I guess Grant and Jane Jane was really specific about wallpaper like what kind of wallpaper she wanted and we searched high and low for the perfect wallpaper and maybe thought of finding some amazing old vintage wallpaper that somehow might still exist but we actually ended up um designing all the wallpapers from scratch and kind of having wow. them made just to get that right level of you know floral intensity um and there's some very a bit more subtle wallpaper going in on Peter's room and in, in the brother's room as well, um, yeah everything, everything was designed for a very specific kind of um, effect.
1: or a civic pioneer did the allied powers go too far in firebombing the german city of dresden at the twilight of world war ii and how did the marquis de sade acquire such a sinister reputation and was any of it true these are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on conflicted so if you love history or just enjoy a good story please join me your host Zach Cornwell for a fascinating new topic each and every month conflicted a history podcast is available on Spotify Apple or wherever else you get your podcasts I hope to see you soon
3: So you were mentioning doors. I was curious then because, like, one of the first times we see Kirsten Dunst is we keep seeing her through this. There's one the glass is broken out of one of Mm. the four paints the door. Tell Mm. me about that.
5: Yeah, that um, that uh, I guess that set that that location we called the Red Mill, which is where we first meet Rose, um, where we find her as this kind of very capable, strong. Woman who runs a business is a single mother, um, cooks, cleans, does everything, and is very, you know, social and an entertainer and a host. And so, yeah, that little window was a, I guess it's in the script about the, the sight lines. The sight lines in general in this film are really important and, again, really designed as to who sees which spaces connect visually. Um, and we had a lot of conversations about the door. <laughs> how it would swing and and how, how we could have that kind of peephole into the the public space and back into the private space. Um, yeah, I really love those shots of Rose. Um, we see her kind of the the repetition, I guess, in, in the shots, her kind of, I think there's repetition, there's one particular moment where you see her kind of really, see her kind of pain at what Phil is doing to Peter. And then also later the kind of joy that she gets when, when George comes and pretends to be a waiter. Um mm. yeah. Uh yeah, again, a very small detail. I'm glad you picked up on it, It it's very much designed for that effect. And um yeah, lots of lots of conversations and and I guess just pre-planning. You know, we we did a real extensive shot listing, so we um we knew. Yeah, you know, when you start shot listing and also spending time in the in the sets and on the location, you can start to, I guess, know what what you're going to need. And, and with enough planning, you can ask, you know, make a request of art department to change something or make a door swing a different way or if you hadn't planned it properly or you know, remove a pane of glass or make just those little things that, yeah, I guess, just serve the, the coverage and the story so you guys have
3: um a lot of shots with a lot of depth often multiple planes of action going on but you know a lot of it's when that happens is shot in low light or interiors how did you guys get enough light to keep kind of the deep focus but also keep it looking keep moody and gloomy
5: mm. yeah um i don't know i love lighting it's kind of one of my great joys in life um and in many ways, it's artful. Obviously, it's a, it's kind of an art and there's poetry to it, but I guess in many ways, it is physics. And the great thing about light is it travels in a straight line and it does what it, it's predictable. It, it never, by nature of it being light, it doesn't uh, betray you with the rules that it, it does. Yeah. So I don't know, for me, lighting's the, you taking into account the light and the quality of the light. And then the surface that it's hitting is is a huge factor. So it's, light source and surface. Because, I mean, we only see surfaces because the light bounces into our eyes. So taking those two into account, um, there's no trick to it other than physics. It's kind of the level of reflectivity or sheen on things, which is different for every surface um, and different colors of surface. So knowing how to light skin versus a wall behind someone and how to make a dark wall, not just be black, but to see a wall, but still be dark. Um yeah, I guess it's a combination of deciding, I guess, what you want it to look like. And then you execute that with just a very unromantic idea of physics, <laughs> creating romance through physics. Um, that's kind of that's one of my favorite things about cinematography. It's really those two things together, technical and art.
3: Did your team opt for a lot of natural light? Or was this one of those more where we're going to everything needs to be strictly controlled? So it's going to be more artificial based?
5: Well, the so we built the house exterior on location. Um, and then the interior is all in studio. So I guess in studio um by definition, there's no (laughs) such thing as natural light. So yeah, interiors are very much lit. Um, but I'm not someone that ever really uses lights outside. So the exteriors are more bounce, bounce and neg. And then also just being on the being in that location for long enough to know, get to really know the light, obviously the sun path and then the weather conditions and the um, yeah, when you spend enough time in a place you you know what it's going to look like at 4 pm looking this way or this and you can kind of I guess create the schedule accordingly and and know um, if you need to pivot and Yeah, again, planning and planning and understanding of light um, again something I really love or even something like say the remember the scene where Phil and Peter are talking. Um, there's a big haystack. Um, They're leaning against the haystack, and it's a really important talk uh, conversation scene where they kind of have a really honest talk for for the first time out in the privacy of um, the um, hay kind of field where they're working. And uh, even that was like, you know, we know we we know we want to look this direction, we know we want to look this direction, we know more or less the date we're going to be here. We really wanted them to be in shade. Even that's okay. We'll decide the exact size of the um haystack calculate the shadow calculate the time we're going to be there um to make sure we can have the backgrounds we want but then be in shadow um and all that again is really fun decide what you want it to look like creatively and then use kind of math physics (laughs) light traveling in a straight direction to to make sure that that's going to be what you um the shadow is going to be there when you get there on the day in four months' time yeah. or six months' time. Yeah. So what about, um? tell me about
3: a little bit communicating changes in power dynamics between, like, how you frame the characters, who's up, who's down, et cetera, et cetera, because that seems important to the story.
5: Yeah, I mean, this film is all about power dynamics. I think that's one of Jane's kind of, I don't know, real points of interest in general um, and a fun thing to play with for a DPU. I guess we didn't necessarily make strict rules about it or or but but we're always trying to put the camera where it feels right to be and for Phil we ended up just kind of looking up at him a lot that scene where Rose is playing the piano there's a kind of very tight low angle looking up through the banjo at him and you really see glint in his eyes and just the I don't know menace of a face takes on a whole different thing when you come really low on it and Um, I know for many people it seems like an unflattering angle. There's a a kind of idea in cinematography that you shouldn't look up at someone, that it's somehow, like, not the thing to do. But I think it does create an effect. Um, I disagree, actually, that it's not good to look up on people. I'm kind of a short person, so maybe I'm (laughs) just used to looking up at people more. But um, I love that angle. I also love uplighting. We did do a lot of uplighting on Phil, like kind of bounce off the ground up into his face. for me i love what that does kind of you get the light hitting the the top of the eye socket get eye light in the bottom of the eyes um i guess as well when you've got hats and stuff um you want to kind of bring the light up underneath and it it does add a kind of I know that monster yeah it's all come becomes part of it so a lot of the time with like phil from below and yeah and then i guess it's all in that design and the and the script i mean the script also has these scenes like i was saying of phil looking down um on on rose mostly i guess um so yeah a lot of a lot of a lot of um power <laughs> dynamics um to investigate and then obviously um i guess
3: jane wanted there to be a lot of visual symbolism too throughout it's it's very freudian right like benedict is framed often i guess to have a lot of phallic symbols Right, he's like got the giant log and then you guys frame the rope around like that's
5: deliberate, I assume. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it, it's in the script, but then it's how Jane kind of gets the actors to to do it. There's, there is the symbols, and the there is the the rope is a huge part of the of the script. And I love, it on a very meta level, it, the script is a bit like the rope, or the films like the rope. It's these pieces kind of coming together, um, and these things kind of intertwining um together. And but yeah, there's um, plenty of uh, definitely that the log going into the kind of log going into the hole and the the rope and at the end when he kind of inserts like the last piece of the rope that Peter's bought him and I guess it's also because it's a film where at that time Montana 1925 people couldn't really talk directly about things they were feeling um right. and maybe they don't have the emotional language or in Phil's case it's just too dangerous to actually talk about it um be very risky for him in that environment in that world to come out and talk about what he's thinking about um so with that in mind these symbols take on a kind of another layer another meaning and i guess also the way you shoot them like there's there's this very kind of tactile type thing of rolling a cigarette or catching right. a rope in the way that you would kind of shoot a sensual um you know a sex scene or something really like touch yeah. things and feel in particular is very he touches the saddle caresses the saddle and and so yeah there's there's an expression of a kind of i guess desire and yearning to touch something someone and if you can't touch another person then you can kind of put that into other things and then i guess as well there's i don't know, even the way we think about the mountains and horses it's kind of The natural world also has a sensual kind of, you know, um, grass blowing in the wind and horses kind of intertwined, and the the folds um, and valleys of the mountains that would kind of shoot like naked bodies as well. Sometimes the kind of sensual, almost erotic element to those. So that that was very much, um, very much intentional that that those unexpressed, um, I guess, desires would come across in the with the objects and the macro um, details.
3: Well, with some of those shots of the valleys and the mountains, did Jane just kind of let you go wild and shoot B-roll all around that gorgeous area?
5: Um, I guess yes and no. Like on any shoot, as much as we'd like to think we can go wild, you're mm. on such a tight kind of schedule to, to get, to shoot the, the scenes themselves. So um, that's something I plan really carefully, or, or plan to know that we're going to need. Um, and of course, you never know where where they're going to actually be used. Right. And because they don't fit within a scene, then they're not really on the schedule because they don't have an official role yet. But they will be necessary in the edit. Um, so my my um, I had an idea that we ha- we couldn't leave this location until we'd shot some landscape and jane had the very wise kind of addition to say we should also get not just wide but really macro um Mm -hmm. and not necessarily yet knowing where they would have a role where they would fit but that they were going to be essential in the edit to well who knows what they were going to be used for but we had an idea that the landscape and the nature details had the potential to take on something else um, when used in the edit so the way I did that in terms of it wasn't quite going wild. It was kind of almost the opposite. we spent, I guess, almost a year prepping the film and during that time made multiple, multiple trips to this location and, and took probably thousands of photos of these places. And I, I have like a GPS kind of tracker on my camera. So when I take a photo, it kind of has a GPS coordinates so you can always find that spot again. So I guess when I got to the end of prep, um i basically made a best of of maybe the top 20 kind of favorite shots um with gps coordinates and then the kind of time of day or the kind of weather conditions we were looking for um to capture that particular um vista and then we would basically try and within the day you know either be opportunistic and because you know the place you can feel like okay it rains you know what happens is it rains and then when the sun comes out, that's the right time of day, this thing happens, so, you know, if it starts raining, you could say, okay, get hopefully B camera to break off, give them very specific coordinate and hope like hell that that weather thing's going to happen. Um, and, yeah, I think we pretty much got all of them. It was kind of like a shopping list to say we've got, you know, five or six weeks here, let's try in that time to get all of those amazing photos, um, those vistas. And also um, yeah, even for a lot of like all like camera department team were always also on the lookout and me as well for extra, extra things. And to, I don't know, I love, I love when you can collaborate with crew in that way and they're so invested. Yeah. They are also looking out for and, and will come tap you on the shoulder and be, hey, while you're setting up that um, Ronan setup or whatever, I think um, the mountains look really cool. Shall I go shoot a time lapse? And of course it's like, yes, absolutely. Um, do that, but it's also kind of knowing engaging crew in a way where they're really understanding the visual style and why you're doing things and how you would want, you know, that sensual way for things to be shot that um gets people kind of engaged so that they're I don't mean it's also just like such a devastatingly beautiful place that yeah. you're standing there with the camera, you you're really hungry to to use it.
3: Okay, you have such
5: a precise scientist mind
3: for this. Are you ever going to direct? you
5: think <laughs> um it's funny um I guess people ask me that quite often um actually what I love is writing I really love um script work and writing and story is my kind of obsession I don't necessarily right now have a I don't know yearning to direct because I I guess I can see that with all the directors I work with you have to want it so much like it's such yeah. a you can't just maybe want it you have to really want it and and have this obsession so I think if that obsession came to me over a particular story I would you know I'd probably love to that's why I kind of started film school did plenty of that and and do really enjoy it but I also love collaborating with directors and um I don't know I'm probably right now I'm more drawn to to writing and I do get very involved in the the minutiae of script and you know sometimes trying to yeah contribute like through the visual translation from script to visuals there can be things that 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 morph a bit in terms of scenes and stuff and I love kind of working with directors to tease out how to get something across visually um even if that might mean a small tweak in the scene to make it work even better it's the same scene or it's the same feeling but tweak something in the script and actually visually um it's stronger or something so that's my kind of right now anyway that's my like thing that really gets me um you got
3: one director in particular you just die to work with
5: oh I couldn't name that I don't know I, <laughs> my name, my, my mind always goes blank when anyone asks me like your favorite thing or your favorite um I don't know I actually love all what I love is directors I guess that a singular vision and also kind of I don't know that like executing a, a great example of any kind of film whatever genre is is inherently so satisfying to watch whether that's a anything from a musical or rom-com sci-fi like whenever a direct a great director takes on a particular genre that's super exciting to me so I I don't know just um, again and also like super open to all kinds of um yeah I don't I don't really even have a kind of type I guess of the particular okay. person I love to work with just just that thing of that you know what I was saying about really wanting it Just having that burning desire at some point it's not even a choice like it has to happen the story has to be told that's what I latch on to
3: well I think I'm about out of time so uh thank you so much the work is just stunning and uh I'm pretty sure you're going to get nominated for an Oscar
5: this year that's really cool so uh good luck this season thank you thank you thanks to your great questions as well it's really uh yeah, great guess. when you get to kind of engage on a really I don't know. You've seen my mind. I like to zoom in on the details. So when it gets detailed, I love it. Thanks so much. I'm glad to hear that. Hey,
2: Matt. Hey, Jesse. How are you today?
5: Pretty well. How
2: are you? I'm doing really well. I'm speaking with you, sir. uh, So I'm very, very excited. (laughs) thank you so much for taking the time here to chat with me today about your work in Jane campion's the power of the dog uh, you've been on such an incredible hot streak these last oh I don't know let, let, let's just say the last decade wow <laughs> you've just been turning out uh amazing performance after amazing performance working with some of the most top tier best directors alive today I'm uh, curious to know how you came aboard the project and was it always a conversation that you were going to play uh in this case uh, George i
6: I first read the script and met with Jane God, it must have been uh spring 2019 something like that I had just mm. finished. Um, maybe 2018. I just finished. Uh, I'm thinking of ending things and uh, read the script and was blown away by it. Met Jane and was blown away by her and and uh, just she showed me a few a few images that she put together for for just sort of inspiration and was just like floored by what she had already sort of come to uh, and that was very early on in the process and. She was uh, really only interested in me playing George, and um, and I, at that point, was sort of trying to find my way into it. And she, she in that first meeting, you know, because in reading the script and in reading the book, uh, I you realize that a large part of uh, information you get about George is through Phil's eyes and it's coming from Phil. And so I was just trying to figure out who he really was underneath, you know, all of sort of Phil's insults. And she referenced, um, she referenced Robert Duvall and the Godfather. Mm. And that was something that immediately brought me into kind of another dimension. And I totally understood what she meant by that, this sort of quiet, strength that he that he that he had in that film while still being sort of the odd man out you know yeah then after many twists and turns where it's like it seemed like the scheduling wasn't going to work and then a year and a half or so later paul dano fell out and i was available and jumped at the opportunity yeah
2: that's uh, that's pretty phenomenal, and you get an amazing opportunity here to act opposite uh, Kirsten in this, which I imagine must be such a thrill for both of you uh, to be working together again in this movie. Uh, can you talk a bit about what that is like, uh, having your partner uh, be with you on set? Yeah, you know, I...
6: I know Kirsten and I have talked about it previously, but th- that was sort of how we first connected was through working together. And it was something that for, for whatever reason came very naturally to us. Um, We were able to, you know, when we were working on Fargo, you know, we'd only known each other for a few weeks, but we were able to really sort of cut through all of the nonsense and tiptoeing around, you know, pitching different ideas and just, just really Supported and trusted each other very early on, and just had so much fun working together. And obviously got together a year and a half, two years after that. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time we'd worked together uh, since. So there was a part of me that felt like, well, this should be very easy, but that's always kind of like dangerous territory <laughs> whenever you, are, you know, are, are overly confident about something. And then I think I was kind of nervous the first time we rehearsed in front of Jane, you know, because I, I, we had only played these very specific parts, uh, you know, in Fargo. And after the, the first rehearsal, after the first take of of rehearsal, uh, I just felt like, yeah, this is, (laughs) I was correct in that this is going to be very easy and a lot of fun. And it was, it was just interesting to, to find the new dynamic um, you know and and to to already have sort of the hard part, you know like the, the connection underneath it all that was that was sort of built in so it was more just about finding their specific physicality and the way that they relate to each other, you know all of mm-hmm. that it was just it was so much fun
2: that's great. I'm glad to hear that and uh, working opposite. Benedict Cumberbatch in this as your brother Phil. I'm curious to know, other than the bond by blood that the two brothers share, what do you think it is about Phil that George tolerates, is connected to? What is it that you think binds them other than the fact that they're brothers? Because it's it's amazing to me how much George seems to put up with Phil and kind of just let a lot of his outbursts of uh, anger or these insults that you mentioned earlier like he just kind of lets them roll
6: yeah that was something we we talked a lot about before we started during rehearsals and I don't think it was always that way I think you know the way I'd imagine it as is the case with most siblings is it sort of reaches a, a breaking point and I and I feel like there had to have been an episode where, and, and whatever George's way of, of doing this would have been, but where he stood up to him and, you know, the, the something, something shifted, but to answer your question about what else is, is, is there aside from blood? I think, you know, if you, if you go through the book, it, it sort of seems like our parents bought this ranch uh, kind of on a whim and like to play like to uh, just for, for fun, you know, not, not really with the intention of actually sort of changing their lives drastically, but almost like a go play cowboy for a little while and see what that's like. Cause they're wealthy and bored. And I think they probably didn't expect for us to take to it in the way that we did. You know, I think there might've been a coldness from them where, where it was sort of, even given how brutal Phil could be, I still think maybe it, it felt like George and Phil uh, and the parents. There was there was a, a divide there. And I think as younger siblings do, I think he, he looked up to him immensely, and I think he also knows a side of Phil, a vulnerable side of Phil that... Is unspoken, but I think George can see where it's all coming from, (laughs) you know, and I think there's a uh, not a pity, but an empathy with with sort of the hand he's been dealt in life. Yeah,
2: I was going to ask you as the follow up question. So just to confirm, you think that George knows that there's something going on with Phil, but he doesn't know
6: specifically. What Phil is going through. Well, I think you know. I mean, even in even in the film, the way he talks about Bronco, and the fact that he's constantly talking about Bronco, right? Yeah, has been for years. You know, I, I have my own ideas as to like how much George knows. I do feel like we both looked up to him as sort of a father figure, and then something shifted in their relationship and i feel like maybe george sort of got cast aside slightly as they as they became closer and i think yeah whether or not he witnessed something that that wasn't as uh important to me like i said i i did decide but um i think it's that i know a side of phil that no one else does and um Yeah, I feel like George kind of, you know, even though he's the younger brother, I always looked at him as sort of handling Phil the way you would a child at times, you know, where it's like, yeah, and sort of managing Phil without Phil knowing he's being managed, you know, like knowing him so well that he knows what's going to set him off, and and, um, yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very tricky position.
2: It's a very complex relationship, a, a fascinating yeah. one too, uh, one that I've seen the film three times and it oh, wow. always continuously reveals new layers to me. But there is this unspoken bond that the characters share with one another that, like you said, maybe you get it from reading the book. Maybe you can just get it by having conversations with other people and how they interpret it. And I think that's what makes it all the more fascinating uh, to watch. The two of them sharing a bed together, uh, you know, before Rose comes into the picture, do you think that that is also something that like may have carried over from childhood into adulthood for for the both of them? Or do you think that that is something like a new habit that developed later? No,
6: I think it's been that way since the beginning. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the interesting thing about the house too. Um, it's the house is sort of stuck in time. Um, and it's kind of like full of ghosts and i feel like they are kind of stuck <laughs> you know and their their sort of childhood patterns in, in some way um so yeah i think that's been going on for quite a while yeah but also not to beat a dead horse here but there's there's something too with family dynamics that is kind of inexplicable and, and even in friendships where you know, it can be totally codependent or sort of volatile, the the dynamic, but sometimes it's, you know, hard to escape. Like there's a, there's a, a, a film that I grew up watching over and over and over again called Lonesome Dove. And Oh yeah. Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones, they're like in this old married couple that are constantly bickering and at the same time they're inseparable you know and there's something that i feel like that's the way that george and phil were for a long time and at the beginning of the film even before rose enters the picture i think i think something has kind of soured a little bit and with with both of them and for different reasons you know and what kind of once worked well enough is no longer working you know mhm Uh, At the end of the film,
2: and by this point, uh, I I will have a disclaimer for spoilers. So if uh, people have gotten this far and they haven't seen the film, they probably should stop here. But I want to know from your point of view, after Phil is gone, George now has this new life with a woman that he loves. He has full control over the business. Do you think that there is a sense of relief that Phil is no longer in George's life? Or do you think that he is really sad and does indeed miss his brother?
6: Well, I think I remember Jane and I having kind of conflicting opinions about that. And I think, you know, I've talked to plenty of people where <laughs> it's the hardest thing to admit, but someone passes that has has really, uh, it's been a difficult relationship in their lives. There is that, that feeling of, uh, I think it's a mix of, of a lot of feelings. I think if he feels that way, he probably feels guilty for feeling that way, you know, but I think talking about those, those ghosts in the house. I mean, I, I, I imagine stepping foot in that house, uh, it, it must feel completely different. And, Phil sort of saw other people's happiness sometimes as as like a, a, an attack towards his lack of being able to have that, that same happiness in his life. And so mm-hmm. I think it was it was a, a lot of feelings, but I, I do think relief was probably one of them. Yeah,
2: it's, it's so fascinating. And like I said before, you can watch this movie multiple times, get different interpretations from it. So just even hearing your own Take on it, whether it's you know what we're really supposed to feel or not. I just love hearing that different perspective. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. as I mentioned earlier, you're having uh, quite an amazing career at this point, just starring in all of these. Best Picture nominees, working with all these amazing directors, most recently now uh, like Jane Campion here with *Power of the Dog*. Um, I would be remiss if I did not ask you how are things coming along with *Killers of the Flower Moon*? Because Scorsese is my favorite director of all time. <laughs> yeah, I
6: hear you. Um, it was, you know, just just as this was thrilling to sort of step into this to this novel that. that was so brilliant that I'd never, I'd never, you know, heard of before. It, it was so, it's so hard to find words that that live up to the actual experience. But I mean, just thinking about the fact that this is a true story and one that has has sort of been buried for all of these years, um, and to be shooting in the location where it all transpired so many, you know, 100 years ago, there was definitely. I know everyone felt an enormous responsibility to get it right. You know, obviously it's a film and you're not making a documentary about it, but to, to capture the essence of these characters and to tell, to tell the story as truthfully and honestly as we can. And then, and then on top of it for it to be a Scorsese film with, you know, Nero and DiCaprio and um, Lily Gladstone, who was incredible. Um, it, it, yeah, it was just sort of every aspect of it felt like uh, something that that doesn't come around more than once in life, you know. And and the part as well was just so so special uh, to get to walk around in his shoes and you know learn about this this man and learn about the story and all so it was it was really kind of felt like a once in a lifetime experience
2: well i think i speak for everyone when i say that we're all very much looking forward to your work and reuniting with uh scorsese again uh hopefully next year um i you know i'm sure they're doing uh, a ton of work on it right now but fingers crossed we'll see it uh hopefully this time next year for killers of the flower moon anything else do you have coming up in the future that you're working on right now uh that you're allowed to share with us
6: well, I'm doing this this HBO miniseries right now in Austin called Love and Death. Nice. Which has been a lot of fun. It's a true, true story that uh, took place in the suburb of Dallas, Texas, in the late '70s. And yeah, that's been fun. I'll be doing that until like early April or so, and then we'll see what happens. Yeah.
2: Well. Jesse, thank you once again so, so, so very much for taking the time here to chat with me today. Thank
6: you, yeah.
2: Yeah, man, you're, you're the best. Ever since I uh, laid eyes on you in Breaking Bad, I was like, this guy's going to be special. And then, of course, I then realized very quickly, oh, wait a minute, I already know he was special. I saw him in Friday Night Lights, damn it. <laughs>
6: yeah, that's, that's so nice. Thank you.
2: So it's been really, really great, man, tracking your career. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful rest of your day. You
6: too, thanks, man. Take care.
2: Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interviews with the editor for The Power of the Dog, Peter Skibaris, and the cinematographer Ari Wegner, and my interview with Jesse Plemons here on the next Best Picture podcast. The Power of the Dog is currently playing in limited release and now available to stream on Netflix.
1: 18- us.